All right, so you can turn to Ephesians 6, and we're going to look at verses 5 to 9 this morning. So we're coming to the conclusion of our series through the book of Ephesians, and this week, verses 5 to 9, next week, 10 to 24, Lord willing, the rest of, of the book, and that'll be it. So as we head into this section on work, um, I want you to think about some things, ask yourself some questions. You know, most of us are going to spend somewhere north of 100,000 hours of our lives at work. I mean, that's probably fairly bare minimum for most people. Does what we do for work matter to God? Does the Bible have anything to say about our work? I mean, there's a huge portion of our life. Is work just a necessary evil, or is it a necessary neutral? Like, it's not really good, it's not really bad, I just got to do it, you know? And I mean, this is like a third of your adult working life. So what if you this morning are stuck doing something that you don't love? I mean, maybe you can get another job, but that's not just feasible for, that's not feasible for some people, many people. So if you're doing something that you don't love, are you doomed to misery and dissatisfaction and insignificance? A few other questions to just get the juices flowing and ask yourself some of the things. What are your biggest work-related problems? Is it, like, what comes to mind when I say that? Biggest work-related problems. Is it your boss or the management or other coworkers or your employees or your clients or business is slow or there's a changing market or the atmosphere at work, it's toxic, you know, and the negativity and is it the hours? Is it the cutthroat office culture? And then one more set of questions. What are your biggest challenges internally with relation to your work? Is it the pressure or the stress? Is it your attitude, you know, grumbling and complaining? Is it other people and how they push your buttons? Is it self-pity? Is it entitlement? Is it fear of failure? So our text, and I think some of the things I'll say, you know, will point in this direction, but there's so many other places in the Bible has so much to say about our work. Okay, so if you've never explored this as an issue and you realize, wow, I haven't really thought much about what the Bible might say and how it might impact how I work from, you know, 8 to 5 or whatever your hours are, um, I can recommend some good resources. I'll, I'll quote from a few this morning, and it might be something to just really press in and say, Lord, teach me how to work to your glory. So, as we head into Ephesians here, don't forget the context. Remember back in chapter 515, walk in wisdom. So wise living is the recent context. And then, how are you going to live this way? 518, be filled with the Spirit. So there's empowerment to do what follows. And what follows is instruction to wives and husbands, children and parents, and then slaves and masters, or we could say employees and employers. I'll explain that jump in a few minutes. But once again, remember this, the theme of the whole series, united 
in Christ. We know who we are. We're secure in Christ. We're under Christ. He's the Lord. So we take our marching orders from him. That is key. So this morning is in Christ, under Christ, at work. And three points. First, we need to deal with this slavery issue. And then we're going to talk to employees. And then we're going to talk to and address employers. All right? So first off, point number one, does the Bible condone slavery? Look at verse five. Bond servants, or literally slaves, okay? Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. So have you ever asked that question personally? Have you ever had somebody ask that of you? If you're a Christian, does the Bible condone slavery? Or they say, well, the Bible condones slavery. I mean, why didn't Paul denounce slavery as an unjust institution? Why does it, what does it say about Christianity that Paul was content with this unjust status quo? And this is just one text, right? I mean, Colossians 3, Greg read, also spoke to the same issue, slaves and masters. 1 Peter 6, 1, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants or slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. It doesn't seem like the Bible has a problem with slavery. Titus 2, 9, slaves are be, to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. Like, what is going on? Why? Didn't Paul call for the abolition of slavery? Why didn't he seek to raise up the first century equivalent of William Wilberforce? You know, the guy that was used by God instrumentally to, to you know, bring down, to, to abolish slavery in, in Europe a couple hundred years ago. And especially, I mean, even if you set that aside, I mean, come on, Paul. If you're going to address slave owners, masters, why wouldn't you at least just say you need to emancipate all your slaves? You need to free them all. I mean, does this mean the Bible condones slavery? So listen, folks, if this doesn't bother you, maybe you've heard explanation before. The issue is we still need to talk about this because you need to know the answer to this question because people in the culture are still asking this question, still throwing this at the feet of the Bible. So even if it doesn't trouble you for whatever reason, it does trouble people you're going to meet who need to hear the gospel. And some people may be dismissing the Christian faith in part because of a number of misunderstandings. So even though it is a misunderstanding to think that the Bible condones slavery, we need to be able to actually explain that, right? And listen, there is a history that we can't just ignore. We need to acknowledge that in the UK, in, in Britain, hundreds of years ago, in our country's founding, these texts were actually used in some cases to explain the legitimacy of slavery and slaveholding. Okay? So people you meet are going to need to hear the answer to this question, and the next generations are also going to need the answer to this question. So how do you respond to this? Does the Bible condone slavery? Well, no, it doesn't. So you need to dive into the world of the first century and understand what this slave-master dynamic is all about. So by some estimates, one-third of the people in the Roman Empire at the time of Paul's writing were slaves. That's a lot of people. If there were maybe like 70 million people in the Roman Empire at the time. But slavery in the first century was not a product of racism. It was a result of birth, poverty, 
being conquered in battle, you know, you're brought back and you're a slave. So even though slaves were oftentimes thought of, treated as property, okay, it was not the race-based chattel slavery that blights our nation's history or Europe's history, okay? So to be sure, some of the slavery was akin to the, you know, wicked, unjust treatment of persons, you know, made in the image of God. Oftentimes, it's, it's not that there weren't any ugly realities back then. But there's also quite a bit of this slavery that was more like being an employee than it was like being property, okay? So, for instance, some servants were the managers of larger wealthy households. And so that role would have more in common with like an executive assistant or a portfolio manager than with the stereotypes we might have when we think of slaves. So listen to this quote by Murray Harris. Um, he wrote a book called Slave of Christ. In the first century, slaves were not distinguishable from free persons by race, by speech, or by clothing. One-third of the people, so you're walking around town like you don't know who's a slave and who's not necessarily just by some external um, indicators. They were sometimes more highly educated than their owners and held responsible professional positions. Some persons sold themselves into slavery for economic or social advantage. They could reasonably hope to be emancipated after 10 to 20 years of service. That's another key point. It usually was not permanent unless you chose it to be, which is why you had the language of bondservant. You actually entered into that because some arrangements were really great and I want to work for you for the rest of my life. But most of the time, it was temporary. You know, even if you were conquered in war, 10 to 20 years and you can buy your freedom. So they were not denied the right of public assembly, were not socially segregated, at least in the cities, and they could accumulate savings to buy their freedom. Their natural inferiority was not assumed. You see how different that is than what oftentimes people think and read into the Bible um, from chattel slavery, race-based chattel slavery from the first couple hundred years of our country's founding. So, the other thing to note is that we live in a democracy, right? We know that we have the right to speak up. We can lobby. We can do all kinds of things like that. But that wasn't even an option <laughs> in Paul's world in the first century in Rome. It wouldn't have even entered into their mind as a possibility that they could have risen up like William Wilberforce to overthrow this institution. So this is a huge empire and there's not the option of democratic process like we have today. And add to that, Christians were a persecuted minority. So they were politically powerless. So again, rather than condoning slavery, what's happening, and we'll see this as we walk through it, Christianity is sowing the seeds of the demise of slavery. Okay, it's not endorsing it. F.F. Bruce said this, the gospel brought people into a situation in which slavery could only wilt and die. So let's look at how. Next two points. First, render service sincerely as to the Lord, and that's speaking primarily to employees. And then secondly, render oversight humbly under your master's oversight. And so that is speaking primarily to employers or people who have others underneath them at work. All right, so point number two, 
beginning in verse 5 again. Let's look at verses 5 to 7. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. So first off, I think we just need to notice that Paul wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus. So the church gathers together and hears this letter read. So guess what? The slaves are a part of the church. Like, we can't miss that. They are addressed as full-orbed, like, members of the body of Christ. That would have been shocking in the first century. So in the first century, there were a number of places, both obviously in the, in the Bible we see it, Colossians 3, Ephesians 5, but also in, you know, some secular texts as well, ethics and so forth. They were called household codes or household tables. And normally in household, co- household codes, like how do we operate in the home, wives and, and husbands and children and parents and slaves and masters, usually the slaves weren't even addressed, only the masters. So the fact that the Bible includes instruction to the slaves is actually a statement of dignity. So what does Paul say to the slaves? Or again, we can extend that application to employees how we approach our work. Paul focuses on the heart, doesn't he? I mean, do you see it? It's like over and over and over again. He also focuses on who you're actually, who you're ultimately serving, the Lord Jesus, your true master, not merely people, okay? So he focuses on the heart, and he focuses on your true master. So let's look at those two in turn here, okay? So first, how he addresses our hearts. Look at the language there. Obey your earthly masters with a sincere heart. I skipped fear and trembling for a reason. We'll come back to it. With a sincere heart. Not by way of eye service. You know, just when the the boss is looking as a people pleaser. But doing the will of God from the heart, literally from the soul. And with a good will. Back down in verse 7, with a good will. So what is this? It's wholehearted, enthusiastic service, eager, zealous attitudes in your work. So you know better than me what this looks like or what it would look like in your work. So not service in order to attract attention, you know, only when the boss is looking, you know, kind of see seeing the right people on the email so that they see, like, I don't know what it looks like in your work, but we, we can do this because we want everybody to see what we're doing. And we can just do it as people pleasers. So this means not doing certain things simply to curry favor with the boss, you know? Hopefully jockeying to get the promotion or whatever. No, it means sincerity of heart, working from the inside out, purity of motive. So just maybe to put it bluntly, does that characterize your work? Do you ever say something in the meeting or to the face of the boss and you go, you turn around, roll your eyes, you know, the sigh, 
If, if Jesus was your boss, which he is behind your boss, would you hear something from him and turn around and roll your eyes? Like that's what's going on. You need to kind of see the spiritual dynamic, peel back the curtain and see the spiritual dynamic behind the earthly dynamic. Because the second main thing Paul focuses is on who you're really working for, who you're really serving. So that phrase fear and trembling, we skipped over it, right? It is difficult. Like, is it referring to you should relate to that earthly boss with fear and trembling? Well, that language in the Old Testament only refers to a vertical relationship. And if you noticed it over in Colossians 3, did you notice the parallel between what, what Greg read and this section? There's a lot of overlap. What corresponds with fear and trembling in Colossians 3 is fearing the Lord. Okay, so most likely this is actually vertical. So obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling because you're ultimately serving Christ. And with the sincere heart, obeying as you would Christ. Because again, all of this is vertical. All your work is, is ultimately before and for King Jesus, Master Jesus. So, with fear and trembling, because all work is vertical. With a sincere heart, um, not by way of eye service. Oh, I'm sorry. I just, like, skipped to the wrong spot in my notes. Okay. So, as you would obey Christ, do you see this? Who you're really working for. As you would obey Christ, as servants of Christ, doing the will of God, rendering service as to the Lord, not to man. Do you see? Over and over again. Over again. Who you work for is way more important than what you do for work. So whatever you do for work, you ultimately do that work not for an earthly boss, but for the Lord Jesus. So again, what if, like how would it change your work if you self-consciously walk through this week and every week as if Jesus was your boss? Jesus was your client. And, and it's not just an as-if thing. Listen, I, I don't know if I gave this quote to Chad or not, but Daryl Bach says it well. He says, so the service is not rendered only as if to the Lord, but actually to the Lord. This is actually a real thing. It's not just a hypothetical, like, hey, this is a good example. You know, this is shaping you. No, actually, all of your service is ultimately to the Lord. This is really happening. So you can see how it should shape our work, how we work from the heart and under Christ as our Lord, our, our true master. So since you're ultimately truly working for the Lord, then you can actually trust that the good you do will not go unnoticed. See the implication in verses 7 and 8. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord, not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. This is really good news. Nothing escapes your master's notice. Nothing escapes Jesus' notice. So you can imagine, I mean, first century slaves, you know, if they're, 
in the good graces of their master, that's going to go well for them. If they're not, it's going to go bad. So you can imagine they were really anxious and, you know, there's the pressure. The pressure was on to look good in the eyes of the master. You might go out of your way to make sure your master noticed everything that you did. And you can imagine how all-consuming that gets and controlling the impulses become. And there's fear and there's anxiety and high pressure day in and day out. And it could become like internal slavery that was spawned by the external slavery. Huh. Does that sound relevant? Are any of you, do you ever feel that way? Like enslaved to what everybody thinks? You, gotta, you just can't fail. You've got to make sure everybody's, make sure the boss is happy with you. We can be enslaved to what people think of us. And it's like internal slavery in addition to the slavery of your work. But listen, what, what if you knew that God's gonna, not going to miss any good you've done. And I don't mean just in, the, think about this. This is not just in the realm of, you know, money that you give secretly, you know, to the church or this Christian ministry or whatever. Yeah, he's not going to miss any of that either. You're laying up treasure in heaven. Not just the, in the realm of ministry, you know, the stuff that you do here with the kids or, you know, the way you serve people in the body that nobody sees. And there's all kinds of beautiful behind-the-scenes stuff that goes on here at Bethel and God sees it all. But I'm not actually talking about that either. This text isn't talking about this. This is saying God won't miss all the good you do through your work because that matters to him. He's going to reward that. I mean, you can, you can think about how demotivating it is if much of the good you do goes unnoticed or if credit ends up going to someone up the chain and it's like, why do I do all this stuff? You know, over time, you start to dial back and you don't put forth the same effort. You know, it's just not worth it. There's no point. But what if you knew that nothing good that you ever do in your job, in your work, ever escapes the notice of the one you ultimately work for? What if that was true? Well, hey, it's true. Look at the word in verse 8, knowing. That verb is so important. Rendering service with a good will as the Lord, not to man. Knowing. Like, you've got to know this. You've got to remember this. You've got to keep this in view. That whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's slave or free. Well then, <laughs> like, think about how that could affect and change how we work. We don't have to be enslaved to what everybody thinks. We can be free not to be lazy and do the minimalist ethic, but we can be free to do good work wholeheartedly unto Jesus, whether people see it or not. So think about the opposite of, of this again. And I'm going to recommend this book for you. It's called The Gospel at Work. I think some guys, men's ministry, went through this years ago. Um, how Working for King Jesus Gives Purpose and Meaning to Our Jobs. It's written by a pastor and a guy in the marketplace. They kind of co-wrote it, which is really good because, you know, us pastors don't always get the, the nine-to-five regular dynamics, and so I think it's helpful that they both read it together. Um, so that, that's highly recommended, the gospel at work. But listen to this quote by Gilbert and Traeger. Speaking of the dangers of divorcing your work from your Christian discipleship, they write this, Believing God doesn't care about our work can lead us into disobedience and sin. Christians often find themselves doing things at work that they'd never do anywhere else. 
treating people with contempt, losing their tempers, stealing time or supplies, cutting corners or fudging what's right and wrong. When we decide that our jobs don't really matter to God, we're less careful to keep God at the front of our minds when we're dealing with others. We no longer think to ask ourselves what would please God in this particular situation and circumstance. We find ourselves without even realizing it, doing our work without thinking about Jesus at all. Think, if you think your work doesn't matter to God, it's going to have an impact on how you work. Like, we'll be no different from the world. It'll be either, you know, work as an idol that we bow down to every week, just like everybody else, or fall off the horse on the other side, and it'll be Monday blues, and thank God it's Friday, and live for the weekend, just like everybody else. Rather than live in the strength of Jesus for King Jesus 24-7, Monday to Friday, Saturday, Sunday, it's all his. We live it all before him. Our work matters. We are serving the Lord Christ. We are his servants. Everything that you do, no matter how menial, Paul's writing to slaves. It all matters. So what does that mean? I, I like this quote by P.T. O'Brien, commentator on Ephesians. Ultimately then, the distinction between the sacred and the secular breaks down. Any and every task, however menial, falls within the sphere of his lordship and is done in order to please him. How cool that the most menial stuff can have ultimate significance. So Martin Luther, you know, the reformer, obviously he beat the justification by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone drum. But he also beat the priesthood of all believers drum because in the Roman Catholic Church it was the priests and the bishops and, the, you know, they were up here. They, they really lived spiritual lives. And then, you know, there's all the common people and they're kind of like second-class citizens in the kingdom. And he was saying, hey, the priesthood of all believers... He wanted it the Bible in everybody's hands. And he also had this robust theology of calling for all people. So he wrote one time, God even milks the cows through you. And what he's saying is, it's not only the priests, the monks that have the sacred professions that matter to God, you know. No, God's calling and the sphere of the sacred extends just as much to the milkmaid as it does to the missionary or the pastor or whatever. What you do matters. And that is true. It was true, Paul, with slaves and masters. It's true for us today, no matter what you do for a living. So obey your masters as servants of Christ, who is your real master, your ultimate master. So do so out of reverence for Christ, from the heart, with a good will, with confidence that your true master sees everything and he's going to reward all good work done in his name, by his strength, no matter who you are. So, to use language from Colossians 3 that Greg read, whatever you do, in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. I mean, imagine if Anybody who is a Christian in Wilmington lived that way. What would the reputation for the Christians be? 
So render service sincerely as to the Lord. But listen, not everyone is an employee. Some of us, some of us among, some among us are employers, okay? And so, according to this text, you're more like a master than a slave. So third point, render oversight humbly under your master's oversight. So look at verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Masters, do the same to them? What does that refer to? It's actually outrageous. To the first century ears, that would be outrageous. What do you mean? Do, reciprocal, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, I'm the master here. What is Paul referring to? Actually, I think the ambiguity may be, may be intentional to kind of like get the master's thinking. It's a little cryptic. Like, do you mean obey your servants? No. So the, the relationship's not perfectly symmetrical, but this doesn't mean that you know, master-slave-employer-employee dynamics completely disappear. It does mean, I think, at the heart, that you love your neighbor employee as yourself. And it's been meaningfully applied to those employer-employee relations, the way you treat your, your workers. So the same heart-level dynamics that were you know, exhorted to the employees, to the slaves, that, those attitudes ought to characterize the masters. So this is, this is an equally valuable human being made in the image of God, bought by the blood of Jesus if the employee is a Christian, and then that person is a brother or sister. You're no better than they are. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We're all made in the image of God, so even if your employees are not Christians, still we treat Treat them with dignity and respect. So once again, like we saw in husbands and wives, you know, the marriage stuff, and parents and children, in the kingdom of Christ, in Christ, under Christ, there is no room for an abuse of power. So John Stott wrote this, as parents are not to provoke their children, so masters are not to threaten their slaves. That is, they are not to misuse their position of authority by issuing threats of punishment Punishment was accepted in the empire as the only way to keep slaves under control. doesn't mean there's no consequences if you break rules and, or if your employees break rules, but this, this way to keep them down by threatening is what Paul is addressing. So masters were to respect, not threaten. So slaves had duties to masters, obviously, yes, but Paul says masters have duties to slaves, which is like, whoa. Now, remember that verb, that key verb in the previous section, knowing, knowing that God's going to reward you for every good that you do. Well, there's another use of that verb here. Why should a master do the same and stop threatening? Because they know something. They know that they are both master and servant under the same master. They're both accountable to him. 
to the Lord Jesus. And there's no partiality with Jesus. So your position, your social status, your economic status don't hold any sway with this master. So Christian masters need to remember that they're actually also slaves of the master, the same Lord and master who is the, who is the master of their slaves, their employees. So in the church, in Christ, Christian employees and Christian employers are both fellow slaves then under a common master. All right, so let's step back now and just see things from maybe the bird's eye view. Our work matters. Your work matters, no matter what you do. Because you can and you're called to honor your true master in and through that work. That is meaningful. How we work matters. And it will all be rewarded even if it's not rewarded or noticed or whatever by earthly bosses. Now, tomorrow morning is Monday morning. So how in the world do you do this tomorrow morning? Where does the power come from to do this tomorrow morning? Well, first off, you've got to remember the gospel. <laughs> okay, remember, it's, this series is in Christ and under Christ. So, listen, Jesus is Lord, but he is not your employer in this sense. Salvation is not a paycheck. The only wages you and I deserve are death. Wages of sin is death. We only relate to God by grace. We don't have to work hard enough, get our lives in order enough, clean ourselves up enough to get in with God and make sure he's pleased with us. We need to recognize that all we bring to the table is debt. This debt of our sin the wages that we deserve, death. And Jesus took that for us in our place and paid our debt if we trust him. And we receive the free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Okay? So your identity, this is where when we are in Christ, we're secure. We know who we are, whether we succeed or whether we fail. Your security, your self-worth doesn't come from your work. I mean, how often do people use their work as a source of self-validation? If we do that, it'll become an idol. It'll crush you, or you'll be enslaved to it. So I said work matters, right? Your work matters no matter what you do. That's true. But the most important work that matters is Jesus' work. It is finished. That's the work that really matters. So if you are safe and secure, knowing who you are before God, knowing who you are in Christ, trusting in Jesus as your Savior, then your work will flow from the power of God's approval and acceptance. You don't have to try to scramble to cobble together some self-worth. You don't have to justify your existence, earn the approval and the, the acceptance of other people. I mean, work can so easily become a functional savior. But if we're trusting in the finished work of Christ, then we can look to, we can rely on that work for our security and not our performance, which means our security will just go up and down like a yo-yo. So I've used the uh, chariots of fire illustration 
before. Um, story focused on those two Olympic runners, you know, Eric Little and Harold Abrahams. So Little was a devout Christian, and he's known for saying, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. So he knew who he was, and he was secure. He didn't run in order to justify his existence. He ran humbly for the glory of God. But Abraham's, on the other hand, looked to his running success to secure his identity. So in the movie Chariots of Fire, um, Abraham says, I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. Do you see how important it is for us to be secure, for our identity to come from Jesus and not from what we do? Because if we succeed, then we're going to be proud and we're going to look down on other people. If we fare, we're going to be despairing and feel inferior to everybody else. So work is good, but it doesn't make a good God. And there's a freedom that comes from knowing who we are in Christ that actually should make us the best of workers like this text lays out. So justification by faith is actually the only foundation for life and security and work. And then building on that foundation, we work by God's grace and in his strength. So let me just close. I I was going to put this in the context of Ephesians. Remember how even the most mundane thing done. If a husband lays his life down and sacrificially serves his wife, even though she may not see, nobody might see, if it's ultimately done because Jesus is Lord, it is cosmically significant. It puts the principalities and powers on notice that, you know what, everything is moving to the day when all things find their proper place under the headship of of King Jesus. He's coming back, and when he does, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, and the church is the vanguard. We're like the preview of coming attractions. And so every time we follow his marching orders, we are giving a preview of what's to come. And the principalities and powers, you know what? Their days, days are numbered. So that applies to work as well. The most menial task done unto the Lord is a beautiful trailer for the epic movie of the new creation that is coming. So, as we close and then we're going to sing Let Your Kingdom Come, which is fitting. Let your kingdom come into my workplace and through me at my workplace. I'm going to just read this quote by Tim Keller. Um, Chris Elliott actually pointed me to it. Uh, It's from his book called Every Good Endeavor, which is another great book on, you know, how the gospel relates to our work, okay? So if the musicians want to come on up, I'll quote this, I'll read this quote, and then we'll close by singing that song. Let's bring a little new creation, grace and light and glory to the old passing away world darkness of our work. So Tim Keller, everyone imagines accomplishing things, and everyone finds him or herself largely incapable of producing them. Everyone wants to be successful rather than forgotten, and everyone wants to make a difference in life. But that is beyond the control of any of us. If this life is all there is, then everything will eventually burn up in the death of the sun, and no one will even be around to remember anything that has ever happened. Everyone will be forgotten. Nothing we do will make any difference, and all good endeavors, even the best, will come to naught, unless there is God. 
If the God of the Bible exists, and there is a true reality beneath and behind this one, and this life is not the only life, then every good endeavor, even the simplest ones, pursued in response to God's calling can matter forever. Whatever you are seeking in your work, the city of justice and peace, the world of brilliance and beauty, the story, the order, the healing, it is there. There is a God. There is a future healed world that he will bring about, and your work is showing it in part to others. Your work will be only partially successful on your best days in bringing that world about, but inevitably the whole that you seek, the beauty, harmony, justice, comfort, joy, and community will come to fruition. If you know all this, you won't be despondent because you can only get a tiny contribution out in this life. You will work with satisfaction and joy. You will not be puffed up by success or devastated by setbacks. Amen.